In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. We turn the attention of our minds and of our hearts to Jesus Christ present before us. And as always, we do that in order to pray. And we pray with our heart by telling him that we believe in him, that we hope in him, and that we want to give ourselves to him in love. And to help that prayer happen, I'd like to make a few considerations that perhaps are not the most usual ones that we make when considering the Eucharist. And those two considerations are the final judgment, the end of time, and Jesus' second coming. The final judgment, the fact that at the end of history, when everything is completed, God will come and judge everyone who has ever lived, is one of the more repeated messages of Jesus in his ministry. Time and again, he tells parables. Gives examples. One of the parables that Jesus tells about the final judgment, you remember it, he, sh- he sends, you know, everyone lines up, it's, uh, and he says to the people on his left that they are condemned, and the people on his right that they are saved. And he tells them why. He tells the people who are saved, we'll leave apart the people who are damned. He tells the people who are saved because when I was hungry, you gave me to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. And the interesting point is their reaction. They're surprised. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? When did we clothe you? When did we visit you? I wasn't aware of doing that. What's interesting is that precisely what saves them is what really wasn't on their minds. They really weren't aware of it. And therefore, in this parable, Jesus shows us that salvation, what matters in that moment where everything is decided for eternity does not consist primarily in what we think or what we're conscious of, but in our actions, the choices that we make. And I mention this as we turn, and we'll get into it with the New Testament, as we turn to consider the Eucharist. Because our adoration and our worship of the Eucharist needs to be first and foremost an act of love, even if right now it doesn't seem to me that he's present. I may not feel it particularly. Perhaps what is more apparent and what impinges more on my mind and my imagination is the things that I have to do, the upset that I had earlier today at work, 
that difficulty in family, that other problem I'm having in a relationship, those things are more on the surface. We feel them more intensely. Jesus giving himself with all of his human and divine heart in the Eucharist, which is the fact, which is what is happening. Perhaps right now, as we try to pray, it doesn't seem that that's the case. But very importantly, we need to grasp in faith that it is. That's what faith is, and that's where salvation happens. And, and for us, in our life of prayer, one of the things that is so important and helps us so much centering on the Eucharist is that we can go beyond how I might feel or find myself in a given moment. And I say that's a great consolation because you surely have the experience that there are moments where you can't really change the way you feel or the stress that you have or the circumstances that you find yourself in because it just is. But even though it is that way, it is still possible to pray if I understand prayer in this way. It's something that I choose. Lord, I turn to you right now and I worship you and I adore you and I, I want to feel your presence more. But I believe that as long as I am faithful to that prayer, that action is what is really transforming me, whatever the appearance is. But let's consider more this idea of appearances. And I mentioned this point of Jesus' second coming. Again, another thing that we don't usually think about when we think about the Eucharist. Jesus' second coming. This isn't some obscure doctrine that a few evangelical churches in the south of the United States are into. You know, the rapture and waiting for the end times. And I grew up in South Texas, you see. I remember one time... There was, it was announced that there was going to be a certain day. I think it was like in, I must have been like nine or ten years old. There was a, in the area where I was, there were people going around saying that like at the end of the month, Jesus was coming, end of the world, all of this was happening. My mother kept assuring us that it wasn't the case. Huh? But I kind of remember as the day, guys, like kind of like, wonder what's going to happen. Like, you know, nothing happened as you... <laughs> you realized <laughs> as it is. But it's not, Jesus' second coming is not something that certain people with a mistaken reading of the Bible harp on. It's actually the heart of our Christian belief. Every Sunday we profess it in the creed. I believe that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, the point is this though. When Jesus, we say Jesus is going to come again, Almost implicitly, we can be led to think that, well, if he's going to come, he's somewhere else. Right? If he's going to come, kind of maybe without thinking it explicitly, kind of in our imagination, we kind of, he's going to fly from some heavenly space and come here because he has to come. Well, that's why other passages in the New Testament are helpful. And, other biblical language. For example, the way in which St. Paul and also St. John and some of his letters say not so much they're talking about the same event, the same reality. They don't say that Jesus is going to come again, but they say when Jesus appears. 
In other words, he's not, com- he's not absent now and he's going to come in the future. He is here. But the difference is, is at the end of time, that presence will be universally manifest and definitive. And in fact, the, the word that they use when Jesus appears very much suggests the drawing back of a curtain. The revealing of something that was always there, but perhaps hidden from view and people were acting as if it wasn't there. That should inspire in us a wonder, a desire to worship, that right now, behind the thin veil of the appearance of bread, the resurrected King of the universe is present because he loves me, because he wants me to have the fullness of his life and joy, because he's interested in my life, because he's given me a mission and a vocation. He accompanies me, he suffers me, and he is present. Both of these considerations, the consideration of the last judgment that we're saved for what we do, the consideration of the second coming, that Jesus is not transporting himself to where he is, to where he's not, but he is present, and the second coming will be the revelation of that presence. Both of these things need to help us appreciate the Eucharist on surer footing, a more solid faith. This solid faith that helps us worship, adore. And to worship and to adore is to explicitly, on purpose, recognize and indeed celebrate that God is so much greater. Lord, help us understand and appreciate the immensity of who you are, of your love, of your power. Part of what can give us peace and even a sense of salvation is is recognizing that, thank God, I am not at the center of the universe. The things going on in my life are actually not the most important things. To get perspective. To see that I'm actually in God's hands. And those are loving hands. And the reason that I know that are loving hands, one of the reasons, is precisely the Eucharist. This reality of Jesus' presence, this objective importance of our choices, can also help us in our efforts to have this daily personal prayer, to realize that when we're praying, we are encountering someone else. And this, this may be too kind of obvious a point to make, but, but I think it's, it can be a helpful one. When we're encountering someone else. We're not simply talking to ourselves. And all of us know that there's a huge difference between talking to someone and talking to ourselves. Think about the last time you were distressed and you, had to, you were upset about something. If you could choose, all right, you can just go in the room and talk to yourself, or you can get on the phone and talk to your best friend. None of us would say, well, you know, I kind of want to waste the money on the phone call. I'll just talk to myself and it'll be the same. Right? 
I mean, obviously it matters that I'm dealing with someone who is not me. Because that's where love happens, that's where clarity happens. And it's also where prayer needs to happen. Lord, in my prayer right now, I am talking to you. You are listening. You who transcend my imagination, who transcend my ability to understand, my ability to grasp, you are there receiving all that I say, all that I feel, all that I give. And we need to get to that point in our prayer because we're practicing, because we're striving, that we realize that, that He's listening. In a sense, we feel it. And sometimes that'll be because you're using words, you're because you're using imagination, but many times it will be because you don't use any of that. It's just enjoying His presence. And the Eucharist, and especially our celebration this past Sunday, the Solemnity of, the, of Corpus Christi, the ability to have Eucharistic adoration, to be in His Eucharistic presence, is an important opportunity for us to experience, and again, to use that word, to practice enjoying that presence of someone else, but not just anyone else, of Him, of God. With the time that's left in our prayer, I'd like to turn to the New Testament and try precisely to use our imagination so that it helps us engage our heart, engage our will, so that we can embrace Him, and of course, most importantly, be embraced by Him. And to imagine the Last Supper, that solemn moment of intimacy, where Jesus gathers around His friends, and He gives them the gift that we are contemplating now, the gift of his body and blood, his life in the Eucharist. And that scene of the Last Supper that we're very familiar with, to try to imagine it with Jesus in the center of the apostles, each one of them close around him, in that dim silence at night, two or three of the apostles leaning forward, straining, to hear the words that are gathered in St. John's Gospel, words that express Jesus' friendship, words that express his love, his intention for each one of them and for you and I. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus' zeal, his desire. The Eucharist doesn't move. It is still, and it is silence. But that silence needs to speak to you and I of perfect activity, the dynamism of God himself, the dynamism that precedes your thinking and mine, that speaks in the very depths of our souls, calling us by name. That silence, that stillness, is not passivity, but it is the pure activity 
of God's love. And that's what Jesus says very, in the, very soon. I have eagerly desired Jesus to pass over with you. Why? So that he could give us this. So that we could have the Eucharist. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. These are words that are familiar to us, but as we try to hear them in prayer, as you hear these words, tell him right now that you believe in him. And as you tell him, as you engage that faith, try to feel yourself being handed over to him. Because that is what faith is in many ways. Jesus, I put myself completely in your hands. And completely means without holding on to a desire for reassurance, without being worried of how things might turn out. Jesus, I want to put myself in your hands. I, I dare to believe that you are there to receive me and to hold me that your hands are strong hands, they are secure hands, they are hands that are capable of holding every aspect and facet of my life, therefore I don't need to worry about it so much. I just need to live it. I need to face it and embrace it with the sense of mission that he gives me. Without looking over my shoulder, without trying to future-proof everything that I do, by running it through my mind and my imagination. Lord, I believe in you. I believe that you are present. And Jesus continues speaking to the apostles crowded around him, speaking precisely to this willingness to entrust. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's really a beautiful moment in the Last Supper. Because Jesus has been living day in and day out with these men, traveling with them, countless meals, conversations. He's lost his temper with them. He's spoken to them one-on-one. -on -one. He's laughed with them. He's enjoyed their company. They know him. And with that confidence, with that friendship, Jesus is telling you, believe in God. They, they were... They were God-fearing Jews. They had faith. And Jesus sees it, believe in God. But as they saw his familiar humanity, Jesus the man, says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Trust in me. I know I look just like a man. I know I just seem to be Jesus to you. But believe in God, believe also in me. And isn't it very sim similar what Jesus is saying to us from the Eucharist? Believe also that this is me. That that loving face, that kind voice, those merciful hands that we consider in the Gospels, that this is me right here. You believe in the Gospels, believe also in me. Believe that I am the same Jesus present here. 
I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. This is a promise, a promise that Jesus makes. Right now in your prayer, tell him that you want to believe in this promise. That's hope, hoping in him, that he is not leaving you orphaned, that he is coming to you. Even if the world does not see him, you can see him with the eyes of faith. But you have to want to. And that wanting needs to express itself in actions. And the choice to pray. And the choice to try and seek him out in the middle of what you're doing in your work. Making that time for him during the day. In that humility to worship, to adore, to acknowledge him for who he is. Every single one of us, to one degree or another, wants to, and here I speak very generally, improve. We want to grow. We want to improve in our work. We want to improve in our relationships. We just want, would like to anyway. Again, I say various degrees. We just like to be better people. Maybe a little bit less lazy. Maybe finally get off the couch and start exercising. Stop putting off that other thing that I've been putting off. Whatever it may be. We all want to grow. And, and we want to improve. But at the same time, at the same time, and perhaps even more deeply, each of us wants to know that we are loved even if we're not improving or growing. Even if I am a little bit shabby and kind of lazy and rough around the edges. I want to know, I need to know, and this is what gives us security and confidence, that just as I am, in some way, I am okay, worth loving. And Jesus Christ, present in the Eucharist, present before us, brings these two desires together perfectly. The desire to know that I'm loved, not because I achieve something, not because I do something, but because I am. And the desire to improve, to grow, to change, to convert, to break with sin in a decided way, in a wholehearted way, those two desires that might seem to be in conflict, and sometimes in our minds we can get kind of complicated, or even when you try to speak about it, as I'm trying to right now, it, it, it gets lost. But in the Eucharist, in prayer, what seems complicated and opposed needs to become simple and clear. We need to understand it in our souls. And to contemplate that Jesus in the Eucharist, when we worship him in exposition, is there revealing us his love. When we receive him in the Mass, we receive him as forgiveness, as mercy, and also so that he become our food so that we might be sent, 
so that we might bring his joy and his truth to others through our friendship and our concern and all of the opportunities that we have being shoulder to shoulder with so many people in so many different situations. He gives us that unconditional love in this very same moment that he gives us that love as mission. Mission to improve ourselves and through our interest and concern to help our friends and our colleagues improve as well. As we consider the Eucharist and as we end our prayer now, we remind ourselves, in the beginning we spoke about maybe a presence that sometimes we may not notice. But Mary is always at Jesus' side. And so often we don't notice her presence as well. But again, the same truth applies. Just because we don't notice, just because it doesn't seem that she's at my side, doesn't mean that she's not. And it can be a helpful way of learning how to speak to Jesus in the Eucharist, to ask Mary. Mary, I don't know what to say. I don't know if I'm doing it in the right way. I feel a little bit lost. Like I'm kind of stumbling around and trying to find the, the switch in the dark in a room and making my way forward and banging my shins on coffee tables and don't know. Ask for her help, ask for her guidance and keep reaching, keep striving with determination and unshakable determination that brings us with that sincere desire to find him in our personal prayer, the times we have, but to really make that effort, if we can, as we are right now, and as many of you have this evening, to encounter him in the Eucharist. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.